2: Good morning. It's
3: 8.30 on Tuesday, May 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how the State Crime Lab's backlog is impacting serious crime cases in Mississippi. Then, Mississippi families are headed to the nation's capital to urge legislators to think babies and act. And the latest as Mississippi continues to be the most food-insecure state in the nation.
5: The last year, the cost of a meal in Mississippi was $2.95. This year, is $3.04. So if you're already on a stretched income and food costs go up, there lies another
3: problem. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi State Crime Lab is struggling to meet growing demands with limited staff. Officials say it's causing frustration on several fronts. The Crime Lab serves the criminal justice system by analyzing evidence, including DNA fingerprints and toxicology. The lab also heads the medical examiner's office. With a staff of fewer than 100 people to cover the entire state, some processes are delayed. Sam Howell is the director of the State Crime Laboratory System. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the legislature is providing funding for more medical examiners this year to join the small existing staff.
1: Right now, we only have two. The two doctors are currently having to perform about 1,400 autopsies a year, just between the two of them. So that's about 700 apiece. And uh, the national standard is about 250 per doctor.
2: So that is over three times the average.
1: That's correct. It really is. And uh, they uh, do autopsies most all day long. And those are the days that they're not in court somewhere in the state. And, of course, we cover the entire state. So they could be in Alcorn County one day and the Gulf Coast the next.
2: What has been the demand that has been placed on them? How do they manage it?
1: They come in and basically do what they need to do that day. And uh, they take it day by day. You know, it's hard to plan um, anything in the future other than trying to address what we need to today. uh, Because like one week, the two doctors had nine court trials between them, and then still had to do all the autopsies that came in, you know, during that week. And some weeks, it's just, you know, almost impossible to do. You know, the system is sort of unforgiving. You know, everybody needs an answer, wants an answer, expects an answer, um, and they don't want to hear, you know, our limitations, our lack of resources. They just want an answer. And unfortunately, we've been unable to provide a lot of these answers in a timely manner. And, you know, that just takes its toll.
2: What are the challenges of getting more help? What's the issue?
1: Funding has been the biggest challenge, uh, and it's one of the things that the legislature did address this year. And uh, they gave us uh, enough funding and actual positions to hire five doctors, so we're really optimistic that um, we've got those those positions now, and our challenge will be recruiting doctors to come to mississippi and uh, The problem is is there's only about three to four hundred of these doctors in the the entire nation, and we're not the only medical examiner's office that's recruiting. Uh, A couple weeks ago, there were 23 job postings out there. So we are competing with a lot of other people in the country, and it's going to be difficult.
2: So your issue of not having staffing impacts the judicial system,
1: Oh, tremendously. And that that goes for not only the medical examiner's office, but the backlog at the crime lab as well. Um, We used to have close to 120 employees. And and, you know, uh, as you are well aware, uh, Desiree, that, you know, the homicide rate last year was the highest it's ever been in Mississippi. And we're way ahead of that this year for the first quarter. So. Um, you know, there's just a, a ever increasing demand on on us uh, and the examination of forensic evidence, which is so critical in criminal trials, and juries expect it. And and you know, you just don't have enough people to meet that
2: demand. Sam Howell with the state crime lab system. We appreciate your work.
3: Thank you, Desiree. Ricky Smith is district attorney for the 9th Judicial District of Mississippi, which includes Warren, Issaquina, and Sharkey counties. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier they need the support of the state crime lab.
6: In many cases, of course, the cause of death is is pretty apparent, but there are some cases in which the cause and manner of death are are very important to us, and, and therefore, without the final autopsy report, we can't go forward with a trial on those cases.
2: When you handle these cases with the state examiner's office, what are you told uh, when you go to them and say, look, i got to prosecute this case, this is what I need?
6: Well, just numbers. Uh, We understand, and and we've had a very good working relationship with the state medical examiner's office. Their their pathologists have been very good to us coming testifying for us. But their numbers, uh, they're having difficulty retaining qualified pathologists. I I know they lost... uh, one just before the end of the year, I think, and are going about to lose another at the end of this school year. Uh, So they're down from, uh, as far as their numbers, down to a very small number. I think they have the chief, uh, Dr. LeVon, and then maybe one or two others.
2: How does it impact your morale, or does it?
6: Well, it doesn't impact the morale that much. We we still prosecute cases as as zealously as we, we ever have. And oftentimes we're able to go forward um, without the pathology reports. Again, the, you know, someone dies of a gunshot wound; that's fairly, you know, very apparent as far as the cause of death. Um, so oftentimes we are able to go forward in plea negotiations, those types of things, with with cases without the pathology report. But for the major cases, in fact, we've had one I know of off the top of my head here, but that we really need that pathology report because there were multiple shooters um, at the location, and we're not sure of who fired the shot that caused the death. So we're kind of dependent on that pathology report to uh, to help us to try to determine that. Not that there's no guarantee that it will, but at least that's another factor that we can look at when we're trying to determine who the uh, defendant is in that case. But it does cause some, some difficulty with us on our major cases to be able to bring those to a close because oftentimes those have to go to trial. And without the pathology report, uh, we don't feel comfortable going to trial on most of those.
3: Warren County DA Ricky Smith with our Desiree Frazier. Coming up, Mississippi families are headed to the nation's capital to urge legislators to think babies and act. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. This is
7: Mississippi
3: Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today, families from across the country are taking the nation's capital by storm to advocate for child care. The event is called Strolling Thunder. Advocacy organization Zero to Three is leading the initiative with hopes to make healthy child development a national priority. Myra Jones-Taylor is chief policy officer of Zero to Three. She says working families need support in three main areas.
0: Our campaign priorities are quality, affordable child care, time for parents to bond with their families, healthy emotional development, and strong physical health and nutrition.
3: Why are you all going to Washington?
0: So we know that the brain is developing faster than at any point in our lives between the ages of zero and three. And we want Congress to know that. We want Congress to be thinking babies, to think babies and act every, with everything they do, not just, you know, child care issues, but everything that they do, because we know this is a critical time in the healthy development of a child, and this is critical for our nation's security and for our, our well-being as a country. Um, and so we are bringing 50, or 51 families, families from all 50 states and the, the District of Columbia, to come to Capitol Hill on May 8th to meet with their Congress members and say, to share their stories. We know that parents and families are the best advocates for themselves, um, and and policymakers listen to them because they have really compelling and and real-life challenges that Congress needs to be reminded of so that they can always, again, think babies and act in in everything that they do.
3: What kinds of actions can lawmakers take that would most impact the development and aiding in the development of those ages zero to three?
0: So one is – a national paid family and medical leave uh, insurance program. The time between you know, zero to three is when a child is most capable of learning. There's so much rich um, development that's happening. We know one million new neural connections happen every second between the ages of zero to three. And so we want to make sure that a parent has time to stay home with that child and Form those bonds; those neural connections do—they um, they prune away. They actually—they aren't that strong unless a child has had a strong attachment with their parent or caregiver. And we know that uh, far too many families do not have the ability to stay home with their child in those first critical months. So paid family leave is is critical. Another is high-quality child care. We know, I know, for example, I paid more for my child care than I did for my mortgage when my children were babies. Most families cannot afford that, and we know, again, families are working. We want to have a strong, thriving economy. But we also need to make sure that children are in high-quality early learning settings while mom and dad are off to work and that they can afford it, that they're not breaking the bank to make sure that their children are in safe settings.
3: What's the third initiative or the third priority that you'd like Congress to address?
0: Yes, so that's Early Head Start. So Early Head Start is a very high quality, comprehensive program for low-income families and children who really can make have the brightest start if they get the support. And so um, making sure that Congress invests in early Head Start.
3: Dr. Myra Jones-Taylor is Chief Policy Officer for Zero to Three. The campaign, again, is called Think Babies and Act. And this event is called Strolling Thunder. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
3: Mississippi mom Susan Stearns is attending today's events on Capitol Hill. She says her experience with her children is making her a stronger advocate for others.
8: I have two sons. They are currently two years old. They're identical twins. And they were born extremely prematurely, uh, 25 weeks gestation. Um, So when they were born, my son Oscar weighed 2 pounds, 2 ounces, and his younger brother, by 12 minutes, weighed 1 pound, 10 ounces. And they spent the first six months of their lives in the NICU. And raising children like this has been sort of a unique challenge. They have uh, difficult health care needs. They are immune compromised, which makes it challenging to bring them around other children. And it's really opened my eyes to the difficulty that parents face in raising kids 0 to 3 and the ways in which government policies can really help with kids like mine. Um, So, for instance, my sons are enrolled in early intervention. One of my sons, Oscar, suffered from a severe brain injury during his time in the NICU and as a result has severe cerebral palsy. And for him, there are a number of government programs that have been incredibly helpful. And so we're excited to be meeting with our representatives to talk to them a little bit about what the government can do to help invest in the future of Mississippi's infants and toddlers.
3: What does the future look like for both of them?
8: That's a difficult question to answer. So my son Jack seems to be doing really great. Uh, He seems, other than getting out of breath when he runs around for a a little while, uh, he seems to have very few consequences of his early Arrival uh getting into everything a pretty typical two year old uh his brother Oscar, on the other hand, is facing a very different future, so as of right now, he doesn't roll over, sit up, walk, talk, he has a surgically implanted feeding tube, and he's also visually impaired as a result of brain damage that he suffered and so what the future holds for Oscar is very much up in the air, and that's actually one of the reasons why uh we're going as well um Early intervention for children with disabilities is sort of even more important, if you will, than for kids without. For the most part, studies show that if a kid can sit independently by the time they're three, then chances are excellent that they'll be able to walk independently. And if kids can sit and walk, then their lives improve dramatically. Things like, for instance, you know, Right. If you don't sit, if you don't walk, um, it's difficult for your bones to grow the way they need to grow and for your lungs to grow the way they need to grow. And so um, he's been making improvements all along, but hopefully he'll be able to achieve some degree of mobility. I'm guessing that he's going to require pretty extensive care throughout his lifetime.
3: Because you're the one providing this extensive care, how do you find the strength, the time to take your message to Washington? Do you feel it's because you have to?
8: Absolutely. Actually, um we've been extremely lucky. Um I know it sounds a strange thing to say, but um when talking about having a severely disabled kid, but at the same time too, we are uh, my husband and I are a great team together. Um, We are able to arrange our work schedules so that we're able to have sort of a financial cushion that allows us to better navigate a system that if we had fewer resources would be almost impossible. Uh, Oscar has six appointments every week that he has as just standing appointments. And then if he has medical issues or medical appointments, um... We typically have four to five of those a month. And we live in Oxford, but most of his medical care is provided in in either Memphis or in Jackson. And so if he has a 30-minute appointment in Memphis, that's a, at least a five-hour trip for us. So because we've been so lucky in having these additional resources that have helped us navigate it, that's one of the things I really do want to talk to Congress about You know, we just spent the last seven months getting my son registered for Medicaid. And if we hadn't been able to have sort of flexible work schedules and the opportunity to make a phone call and then make another phone call and then make another phone call and then send the third follow-up email, that process would have been so much more challenging. And so um, that's one of the major reasons that we want to talk about the barriers that families like ours face and um, discuss a little bit with uh, representatives how government policy in particular can benefit families like ours.
3: Susan Stearns is the mother of Oscar and Jack and will be strolling thunder in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. For more information, visit thinkbabies.org. Coming up, the latest as Mississippi continues to be the most food insecure state in the nation. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than 600,000 Mississippians don't have regular access To nutritious food. The condition is called food insecurity. According to a report released this week by Feeding America, many are suffering from hunger. The annual report called Map the Meal Gap is a country or county by county food security analysis. Jefferson County reached 36%. That's the highest rate of food insecurity in the country. Marilyn Blackledge is Director of External Affairs with the Mississippi Food Network. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood, security in the state isn't getting any better.
5: Everything has kind of remained the same across the board for the last few years. We we don't really see things getting better. Um, What we are seeing, and this is another um, thing that affects people being able to stretch their dollars, is we see the cost of a meal going up. So the last year, the cost of a meal in Mississippi was $2.95. This year, it's $3.04. So if you're already on a stretched income and you're trying to stretch those dollars and food costs go up, there lies another problem, because you can't stretch food stamps and you can't stretch your dollars as far. So that also is another factor that leads to food insecurity.
7: I'm sure there's got to be some people um, who, I don't want to say fall through the cracks, but um, that just don't have that access like they would want to. Have you seen any new innovative ways that different people who are living in these areas that are um, dealing with this issue that they're doing to kind of be better prepared or more prepared to have more access to food?
5: No, and, you know, this is just one of those things that people find out about pantries and things, by word of mouth, which is the best way of advertising, um, you know, and we are continually working to find new agencies. We're trying to source more food to be able to get to these agencies to distribute to their clients and their communities. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's a national problem. And, it, it's a, you know, food insecurity is, is a worldwide problem. But it's a national problem. It's a problem we hear, have here. And, you know, at Mississippi Food Network, we just, we work continually to find new agencies to help provide for those agencies, to provide for those people. That, that's what we're here for, is to help feed people that are experiencing poverty-related hunger and food
3: insecurity.
7: Marilyn Blackledge is with the Mississippi Food Network. Thank you again, Marilyn, so much for your time. Thank
3: you, Ashley. Other rural counties like Claiborne, Holmes and Humphreys had rates just shy of 36 percent. Cassandra Welchlin is director of the Mississippi Women's Economic Security Initiative. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the more rural parts of the state are facing several disadvantages. In
4: Mississippi, we one, we know just with the basic data that um, Mississippi is one of the states with the highest population of poverty And so what that means is that we have um, people who have um, households that are food insecure and not just food insecure, but insecure in many other ways, such as access to affordable um, access to health care, access to child care, access to the basic safety nets that they need in order to take care of their families. And food is one of those areas that we know um really plagues a lot of our households and particularly in rural Mississippi um where the access to food banks and grocery stores that have healthy foods um don't exist um those populations um we really see a lot of that happening
7: I was just curious why I mean, why don't um like those grocery stores or you know stores that sell healthy foods why don't they exist in areas like that
4: what we do know is that um, in places such as, you know, the Mississippi Delta or in those rural um, communities, um, uh, the economy is, is is very small there. I mean, we don't have a lot of jobs. We don't have a lot of um, those grocery stores um, because it is in a rural part of the country, I mean, part of the state. And um, the investments just has not been made in those places to put um, those kinds of necessities in those communities, uh, which is problematic in all fronts. It's almost like you carved out a whole section of the state um, and not put the the right investments there. And so we're talking about places don't have access to transportation, don't have access to jobs that would pay, you know, a living wage or a good wage um, so that these families can have those. And so the investment in these rural communities um, just has not been there. And so as a result, there's lacking, a lot of lack, you know, in in that community. Uh, We have families that um, are, you know, may have food stamps, but it's not enough to cover for the end of the month. And so they may have to go to like, um, you know, a food bank, but the food banks just aren't as accessible or as large as maybe some in the uh, more populated cities across the state. And we also know that there's just these little corner gas stations that sell, you know, processed foods. And so families are, you know, using their resources to, you know, purchase processed foods and because they don't have fresh food markets, um, in, in their communities. And so people are, are stacking and packing and doing what they can to make ends meet, but it's, it's just not enough, and the investment just hasn't been made um, in those communities.
7: Cassandra Welshland is with the Mississippi Women's Economic Security Initiative. Cassandra, thank you again so much for your time.
3: Thank you. For eight consecutive years, Mississippi has led the nation with about 20% of its residents living in areas with limited access to meals. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. At 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
4: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.